0: From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Shearadon This is Playback Daily This is, and
1: this is the word of the day A word known as sharenting not sharing as a parent too much of your details
2: A frail honour feeling is either a, a wolf lover, a wolf killer or someone with the essence, the spirit of the wolf We've
3: asked Met Aaron to come on but they're, they're not available um, We could forecast that I suppose
0: Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily. Sharenting. What is it? And why on earth are you doing it? Snow on the way, but why won't Met Aaron tell us about it? And Irarua August Iragloss, When is a grey squirrel green? That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that could have happily lived its whole life without ever hearing the word sharenting. The musings on the news or musings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Turbidey show started with news of a crackdown on that dreadful trend of sharenting. Sorry, what?
1: There's a great word. In in France, uh, they've decided that people, that is to say parents, who seek social media acclaim, attention, might say, by posting images of their children could be stopped under a bill being considered by the French Parliament. This is the countries around the world trying to get a handle on the world of the internet, how, how hard it is to, to be a sheriff in the, in the wild West in 2023, really hard, but they're giving it a go. Um, what did they, who came up with that, that wonderful expression? Was it David Lloyd George talking about trying to deal with Eamon de Valero, was trying to, it was like trying to pick up mercury with a fork. And I think that's what it is like trying to legislate for the internet, trying to pick up mercury with a fork. Um, but fair play, um, President Macron is on this. Uh, the draft private members bill uh, targets a growing band of influencers earning fame and money by chronicling the lives of their children. This is, and this is the word of the day, a word known as sharenting. <laughs> Isn't sharing as a parent too much of your uh, details. With, uh, it, it's too much. More than half of French parents have posted pictures of their children on social media Nine out of ten did so when their offspring were under five. And the average child has its image shared on social media, wait for it, 1,300 times before the age of 13. It's a lot of sharenting. There are parents making several thousand euro a month throwing spoonfuls of mashed potato at their children's faces, says the president of the observatory in France. These practices amount to digital violence while the battle was successfully fought to get rid of slapping and other humiliating practices. Uh, The sponsoring MP of the bill said parents seemed oblivious to the fact that 50% 50% of the pictures exchanged on paedophile forms originated from photographs posted by families on social media. Certain images, notably uh, maybe babies or, or school uniform, whatever, particularly interest uh, paedophile circles, this bill says. And images uploaded by uh, parents and often come, came back to haunt youngsters who become targets for bullying and the law is aimed at reinforcing young people's privacy, minors' privacy, and enabling family court judges to deprive parents of rights over their child's image, uh, the, which would be transferred to a third party, such as social, social workers. So that's that's smart uh, smart uh, law, I think, Um, that uh, they're trying to bring in. In France, mm-hmm. the TV show Toddlers and Tiaras, it was like that, because it feels, feels exploitative towards children, doesn't it? You have to be careful and mind them and and, and see how you're how you're going to work with them, but online, there it is again. It's just, it's, it's, it's a tricky
0: one. If I never hear the word sharenting uttered again, twill be too soon. Shall we go to your news again?
1: Ooh, yes, please. Podrick Hoare is writing in the Irish Examiner today that the majesty and wonder of the trees around UCC as a living classroom for students has inspired the concept to go countrywide. So two years ago, uh, UCC's Arboretum Uh, which dates back to the foundation of the university in 1845, was chosen among 50 projects by Science Foundation Ireland for funding as a way to boost understanding of maths and science among students. Now, I've I've read this piece from beginning to end. I still am unsure. It's probably my fault because I don't really have a very mathematical brain. I'm not quite sure how the trees are helping the understanding of maths and science. I'm sure somebody will immediately write in and I'll happily accept it. But further into the article, it says, considering... One of the f- considered rather one of the finest learning grounds as a recognized arboretum. There are about two and a half thousand trees to explore across 120 different species. I didn't know this, including native Irish and British trees, as well as American, Asian, Australian, and European. And some of the standout trees include a pair of 150 year old giant redwoods, an Irish champion wing nut tree, and a collection of mature pines, including Scots, Monterey, and Bhutan. One of the most Recent additions is the Walimia. Now, I say that like I know what I'm talking about. I don't. All I see is beauty. I don't know the names, but I'm sure it's gorgeous. It's managed by Jack Murphy, which, as you know, he's a busy man these days, <laughs> and his team of gardeners uh, across the grounds of UCC, namesake of our own producer this morning. The importance of our trees, they say, and the tangible uh, benefits that they can provide, whether that is tackling climate change, increasing biodiversity, and, or adding to the beauty of our urban and rural landscape. Anyway, I'm going to put that on my list of things to do next time in, I mean Cork. Another reason to visit a beautiful UCC. Good.
0: The beauty of UCC and its trees celebrated by Ryan Tubridy this morning, and from the banks of our own lovely Lee to Hollywood, California, and a nugget from the upcoming Oscars ceremony.
1: Elvis Presley, uh, as played by Austin Butler, uh, Freddie Mercury, as played by Rami Malek. Whitney Houston, as played by Naomi Ackie, uh, all do a fine job. Now, I didn't see the, the Whitney Houston one, but I did love both the Elvis and Freddie films. And when Austin Butler got to the BAFTA Awards just gone by, he didn't bring his girlfriend as plus one. He actually brought a woman named Polly Bennett. And I said, Why did he bring Polly Bennett and not Kaya Gerber? Well, the answer to that is that she was the movement coach, a movement coach who spent months working with him to transform him into the king so well. And he obviously, in fairness to him, was so grateful for the transformation that he said, will you come as my plus one? Because she did such a wonderful job. She's a British movement director and choreographer based in London and is the go-to woman for transformations when actors need to portray very famous real-life people. So she would have talked, as I say, uh, even Steve Coogan and John C. Riley for Stan and Ollie. They need particular movements And characters in The Crown She was involved in that But she said it, it, With regard to Elvis She said it's not for, It's not simply shake your hand Like Don't just shake your hand But reach out To show off your wedding ring And shake it As if you're taking off a glove I'm doing that in my hand as we speak And I, I can see what he's doing When he's singing a, a particular song You've got to do it The particular Elvis way For the Elvis leg shake She said Imagine you've got a little mosquito On the back of your kneecap Now you're shaking your leg like Elvis. So it's not coming from your hip. It's coming from your knee. And with the, with Rami Melek, in terms of um, Freddie Mercury, she says he wasn't really a natural mover, so I made him walk up and down Oxford Street with his microphone above his head. And while he was training, it, this helped him get used to the idea of people looking at him and wanting people to look at him, to get used to the attention. And Freddie Mercury, I did not know this until I read this, was boxed as a child. And that makes great sense because... It's reflected in the way he performed. All that thing with the shadow punching, uh, when he was punching out uh, songs and on stage and live, you'll see him. It's all boxing. So what? Uh, that's what they had him do to get used to that. And Elvis, of course, when he does all that crazy, particularly on Vegas, that's all karate. He was mad into the karate stuff. So if he does poke Saladani.
0: Will Austin Butler bust out some Elvis-esque karate moves when Colin Farrell wins the Oscar? It'd make for some good post-slap Oscar memes, wouldn't it? Now, next up, the perfect wine crime. Or was it?
1: RT News reporting, a Spanish couple. They they went to this, she's a former Mexican beauty, man and woman, checked into this hotel using a fake Swiss passport. Michelin three-star restaurant at the hotel. And afterwards, they were given a tour of the renowned wine cellar. This is an important detail, the wine cellar. And then they retired to their room. Now, that's fine. They, they run down the clock till 2 a.m. Now, the wine cellar has very, very, very expensive wine there. So they've got a plan. And these are bad guys, this couple. So 2 a.m., the woman calls the reception and asks, you know, there's always one guy left at the reception, the sole employee. Uh, and they ring and she said, can I can I ask you to make me a salad, please? And he said, not really, no. I'm on my own. And you've just had a 14-course tasting menu. And now you want a salad. It's not really, it's not really, I, I, not really. But she kept insisting and he said, OK, 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 just to make her go away. Now, while he was getting the salad ready, her other half slipped into reception, stole an electronic key, which he thought would get him to the wine cellar, but it was the wrong one. So what does she do? From outside the wine cellar, he calls the partner and says, distracted guy, the night manager. So she rings him and said, hi. And he goes, "Oh, yeah, hello. Could, could I have a re- dessert, please? He says, you've had 14 courses, a salad, that makes 15, and now you want, you want a dessert. And he's obviously a good person, doesn't want to lose his job. He goes off and prepares a dessert. So the guy goes back to the, this is obviously the couple of the guy, he goes back to the reception. He goes to the box, he takes the master key from the wine cellar, opens it, and he takes 45 bottles of wine. He carries the bottles to his room in a rucksack and two large bags. The receptionist gets back to the post Job done They thought it was The perfect crime They carried away with them 1.6 million euro worth of wine This is the seller we're talking about Turns out They were caught And they had CCTV These were two fools And the Spanish court Yesterday Has jailed the couple A bottle of Chateau de Chem 1806 Itself One bottle worth 350,000 euro God help us like at least a house worth of wine, how anyone could pay such a thing. Anyway, it was among the wine stolen from this hotel, the Atrio Hotel in southwestern Spain, and they were both found guilty, and they were uh, sentenced to four and a half years for their troubles.
0: I imagine they'll be quite thirsty after that. Speaking of which, time to take a water break and leave the newsings from this morning's Ryan Tuberty show for this edition of Playback Daily. A Dublin Magdalene Laundry, Donnybrook and Church State Power in Ireland is published today. And two of the book's editors, Dr. Maeve O'Rourke of the University of Galway and Dr. Mark Cohen of UCD, spoke to Clare Byrne this morning.
4: The records that were found on the site, which we'll talk about in due course, no doubt, they show us that this Magdalene Laundry was a highly organised, large commercial operation that did business with I think probably almost every institution that you or I could, you know, um, see if we went out the doors here in RTE. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, it did business with RTE. It did business with UCD. Oris was obviously one of its customers. That's something that... um, Uh, we've been speaking about since we found these records. It did business with numerous hospitals, uh, St. Vincent's down the road, the National Maternity Hospital, Blackrock College as well, other schools, Switzer's, Elm Park Golf Club, Fitzwilliam Lawn Tennis Club, CIE, the Commissioner for Irish Lights, the Blood Transfusion Service Board, many hotels and embassies, including the French, Argentine and Canadian embassies.
5: And there's no suggestion that any of those organisations did anything wrong but what it does tell us is how embedded in society the laundry was.
4: Absolutely. And it was sold in 1992 by the nuns as a going concern. So this isn't ancient history. This is very recent. The records that we have are from the 1960s to the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, very extensive indeed. We also um, have found our contributors have found in the research for this book that um, charity appeals were broadcast on Radio Erin until 1970. The newspapers carried frequent requests for donations and commendations of the nun's good work, Requests were frequently made by the wealthy, as well as many others in Irish society and advertised in the newspapers. So Mm -hmm. it was all very well known. um, And it was known at official levels that the nuns were not paying wages. um, And it was known at official levels that courts were sending girls and women. So in terms of knowing that there was abuse going on, um, it was established that these were penitentiaries. In fact, the Magellans were described in the Catholic Directory until 1971 as penitentiaries and that they weren't paying wages. But I think we have a chapter from Professor Ray Denright. She talks about the notion of charity covering a multitude. This notion that um, pursuit of religious ends is charitable in itself and therefore anything the nuns were doing was considered charitable and the people who were donating and the people who were doing business were then established as good Judges you know, of good works.
5: Yes. Just on that issue of not paying wages, um, Mark. That brings us to the example of um, of a military uh, contract that was in place. Now, this is interesting because the interdepartmental committee, which I mentioned earlier, chaired by Dr. Martin Mcaleese, it found that. It wasn't able to verify the claim that the Magdalene Laundry in Donnybrook was awarded a contract for military laundry. You found otherwise, did you?
6: That's correct, Claire. Uh, so, uh, when uh, researching in the Dublin Diocesan Archives, and if I could make an aside uh, on that, uh, I think th- the Archbishop's of Dublin are actually to be commended for allowing open access. Uh, to their archive, um, which uh, turned up some of the the material we've uncovered in the book. So in relation to the military contract, we found uh, in the Dublin Diocesan Archives evidence, um, very interesting evidence that not only was a military contract awarded uh, to Donnybrook uh, during the emergency, uh, but that the state in fact revoked the contract because the nuns were in breach of the Fair Wages Clause, uh, which was a standard clause in all state contracts, uh, and, and there's correspondence between the Sisters of Charity. Uh, in Donnybrook and the Department of Defence and uh, the Reverend Mother at the time, uh, Mother Yukorea, Eukarya uh, Greer um, argues very robustly that she, she, she's a gas that the Department of Defense can't understand that uh, you know that this is a charity, and she makes the point, for example, uh, well, uh, in the commercial laundries where they pay wages, um, if, if the business goes down, they let people go. But she says we always hold on to our penitents,
5: mm-hmm. and she talked about the bed and board that they get and all yes. their needs being met and their doctor visits and so on, equating that to payment more or less. Would exactly. You say? Yes. Now. We've asked uh, Dr Martin McAleese to comment on this and he said that he's not saying anything further beyond his report. All of this began with that YouTube video. It's 38 minutes of somebody walking through the Donnybrook laundry, isn't it, Mark? People might have seen it. It's extraordinary. Religious statues still on the walls, tantalising glimpses of ledgers in a, in a cupboard. So... Once that video emerged, you spent a long time, didn't you, in discussions with the developers who now own that site in order to get access?
6: Exactly, Claire. yes. So, I mean, the the, the kind of route into all of this research was that video on on YouTube. Uh, we don't know who, who filmed it or posted it, but uh, I'm very grateful to them, uh, whoever they are, because um, when I saw that video, um around 2018 um i was just as you say like taken aback by what had survived i couldn't believe that um the laundry that had the Magdalen laundry that had closed in 1992 um still contained all this religious imagery the statuary um the machinery from the 40s and 50s um and as you say tantalizing glimpses uh, of of possibly ledgers and uh, when when we so we entered into a dialogue uh, with the owners and agents for the owners Uh, of uh, the laundry and we were allowed in with uh, an archaeologist, Professor Laura McAtackney, who has um, a, a chapter in the book also and we found a very rich material culture and uh, rich documentary evidence also in the form of correspondence uh, uh, between um, in particular between uh, the laundry and the hospitals dating from the 1980s so uh, you know this is very recent history. Um, and,
5: and-, and all of that documentation has that all been gone through and cataloged now at this stage?
6: so a very good question uh, so it's been deposited uh, in the University of Galway library archives and it's undergoing a process of, of cataloguing at present so um, it, it, will be, it will be publicly available uh, to researchers.
5: Coming back maybe to the finances now there's a chapter in the book that deals with that Dr Barry Houlihan from the University of Galway says that the records demonstrate the laundry was a very well organised industrial and profitable enterprise connected to the highest echelons of the Irish state and you've explained those connections to us a moment ago. But in terms of the finances and the profits, what did you find?
4: Well, Dr Barry Houlihan is the archivist in Galway, so he has been looking through um, elements, I suppose, other than the financials, more to do with types of clients and um, also looking at the analysis perhaps more importantly, on the finances by uh, Dr. Reid Murphy of Dublin City University and Professor Martin Quinn of Queen's University, University Belfast, both experts in accounting. So they um, looked through the extents of records from the years 1962 to 1987. They then took... Um, Years at random recreated the accounts. They found that the Magdalene Laundry generated a good financial surplus annually, and that routinely the laundry transferred between a third and a half of its surplus on trade back to the religious Sisters of Charity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, don't forget, as a charity, is it possible legally to say this was profit? They are by definition non-profit. They were sending their money back to continue their religious ends, um, but certainly there was a very significant surplus in 1975. For example, that surplus that went back um, would have bought two and a half seaside bungalows in Bray. Um, in today's in today's money, in the money back then. Okay. So the purchasing power is something that mm-hmm. um, Dr. Murphy and Professor Quinn uh, note in their chapter. So it is not insignificant and they do note that that surplus was no doubt made possible in large part by the girls and women's unpaid okay. labour.
0: That was Dr Maeve O'Rourke of the University of Galway talking to Claire Barron this morning. Maeve and Dr Mark Cohen of UCD, who was also talking to Claire, are two of the editors of A Dublin Magdalene Laundry, Donnybrook and Church State Power in Ireland. Alan O'Reilly of Carlo Weather, it's a hobby apparently, contacted Liveline today to talk to Joe Duffy about Metairn's forecast on last night's 9 o'clock news. So what's the problem?
7: Well, I suppose the problem is, is that we have a risk of some significant snowfall for parts of the country coming um, Thursday into Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, some, part, some parts tonight... But um, I, I know, in fairness, Metair now in the last hour have issued a yellow warning for, for some parts on Thursday. But um, there, there hasn't been much commentary on, on the actual risk of snowfall on, on the forecast, really, up until... So are you saying
3: Metair got it wrong?
7: No, I, I wouldn't say they got it wrong, Joe. I, I, I think the thing was last night at 9 o'clock after the news last night, mm-hmm. the, the forecast only went as far as Wednesday. There was, there was no forecast beyond Wednesday, um, which I, I, I think is a little bit. Um, I don't like, I'm loath to criticise Met Aaron. It's a very tricky job, right? Um, but I think we need to give people a bit more information than to say that the forecast up to Wednesday. Yeah, and but Met
3: Aaron have a budget of over 21 million. What's your budget?
7: My, 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 which it is as much time as I can find from my employer that lets me spend time reading weather charts, Joe.
3: So how can you do the weather for nothing? Is, 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 is there much more information now available online about the weather once you understand sure. how to crunch the numbers and the graphs and the diagrams?
7: Well, I think, I think, first of all, my hair do a much better job than me. Yeah, well, I cool. I well they'd diff-
3: wanted a 20, 21 million.
7: But I think the difference is, is that I tell people what might happen. So I'll tell them the weather models are uncertain about what's going to happen on Thursday because there's a band of rain that's going to come up and it's going to fall as rain, sleet and snow. Um, and some of the weather models have snow, very heavy snowfall for parts of Galway, Sligo, Mayo, uh, Donegal. And some of it have them as, as more rain and only snow on higher ground. Um, so it, it, you can't be exact. It's a weather forecast. So it's never going to be 100% right. I get it wrong. Everybody does weather yeah, no, 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 wrong.
3: no Hang on, Alan. You, you, might you contacted us. What is the sting of your, your point, please? You're, you're normally very clear.
7: I, I think the thing is, is that we need to have better communication with the weather forecast. Okay. You're Tuesday. saying
3: Metairon last night at the 9 o'clock news should have told us, we presume they knew, should have told us there's a strong possibility of snow on Thursday and Friday. Is that correct?
7: Yeah, I think people watching that forecast last night would have went away thinking there was nothing really significant possible. Um, No, I know it didn't go beyond that. Did they know?
3: Did you know yesterday? We'll hold you to your word on Friday, but did you know yesterday that there's going to be snow in Ireland on Thursday?
7: I I knew there was a very high chance of it happening. Yes. Okay,
3: whereabouts?
7: Really draw a line between Galway and Dublin and go north of that.
3: Well, good luck. And how yeah. much snow?
7: You could be looking at 5, 10, 15 centimetres. Um, like, the UK Met Office issued warnings out as far as Friday yesterday. Okay. So they, had, they had warnings out as far as Friday, and they're giving Northern Ireland to see um, 5, 10 centimetres of snow and possibly up 15, 20 centimetres on higher ground.
3: How does that compare, say, with the beasts from the east?
7: Oh well the beast
3: in the east was a different kettle of fish okay, altogether. Okay. But I'll um we've asked Matt Aaron to come on but they're they're not available. Um we could forecast that I suppose. Um now the 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 does Ireland not go to a standstill when you mention a light dusting of snow? Is that does, is that not the problem?
7: It does. And and to be fair, there's history where forecasts with for snow in the past if snow was forecast in the past didn't happen and people cancelled events and I know some of the commerce community came out very strongly against the mm-hmm. weather warnings and, and scaring people off and people. Well with schools,
3: let's go to the first thing that happens. Will schools have to be closed on Thursday and Friday this week?
7: There's a there's a risk of that in north and northwest, certainly, yes.
3: The schools are never open. They shut down. We had Martin Cormacking uh, at the weekend. He used to be on Liveline every Friday during the pandemic. And he's now saying the schools shut down for way too long during the pandemic. Way too long. And you say light dusting of snow and they will shut again.
7: Well, to be fair, I think the problem is we've such a, a large rural network. I mean, the council can't grit all the roads. Yeah. It, we're just not set up. We don't get enough of it. You know, I've been to Boston. I've been to areas that every local contractor has a plough that he sticks onto the front of the truck and the plough, the, the local areas. Yeah, but yeah. We, don't get, we don't get it often enough to have that kind of setup. Well, all
3: the, well, the road outside me was gritted during the night in Dublin. Yeah, and, and I and went to out sure, this morning and I, I nearly had to go back in at 20 past 7 and put on factor 50 it was <laughs> such a gorgeous morning. But and there was grit on the roads.
7: There was, and, the, and to be fair to the councils, they will grit the main roads, and the TII will grit the main roads, but the local roads in rural areas, unfortunately, don't get gritted because they just don't have enough capacity to do that.
3: Okay. So you're saying snow from Gal- north of Galway, Dublin, on Thursday. What time on Thursday beginning?
7: Well, I'm saying a risk of it. A um, risk, and, and it's from Wednesday night, really, through Okay, areas, from Thursday. tomorrow night, okay. You have
0: been warned... Carla Weathers' Alan O'Reilly has told us to expect snow this week, and you heard it on this afternoon's Liveline. Dara McCormack is one of Ireland's top esports sim racers, whatever that means. Dara spoke to Ryan Tuberty this morning, and thankfully, our host asked him to explain his world. How can you define gaming to an old man?
8: Uh gaming to an old man yeah. I would say is uh complicated nowadays. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, you're gonna have
1: to go baby steps. Ladybird <laughs> guide to gaming, Dara. Uh
8: it's it's become a business, really. Yeah. I um I've turned it into my job over the last few years. Uh started out when I was fourteen and um yeah, it's uh it's it's a very niche market but it's it's growing. What is it? Um so Basically, I I compete in racing online mm-hmm. on my uh, PC against other people around the world for, um, for my job for an iPhone team.
1: Okay, so you're what age
8: now? Uh, I'm 18.
1: And can you remember the first time you played a video game of any description?
8: Oh, probably, I'd say about when I was three, I would have started on a Nintendo DS.
1: And what were you playing? What sort of games were you playing
8: on the Nintendo DS? Uh, I was playing likes of Mario Kart and... Uh, uh, and a game called Asphalt. So, just uh, just simple games. Okay, you're smiling now because you, you,
1: you, it's like nostalgia for you, thinking about Mario Kart and all these old games. I take it.
8: Yeah, um, I mean, I haven't played those things in years. It's uh, I play more of a simulation game now. Okay, so it's uh, what than that? What did you pro- reflect the real world?
1: Oh, sorry for cutting off. What, what did you progress from the age of three or four? What sort of things were you getting into, and what sort of sets were you playing on? And re- remembering, I'm not very I don't speak fluent gaming so can you help me out here
8: <laughs> no worries um, I used to play a game called Gran Turismo on my dad's old Playstation okay. uh, back when I was very young and then um, from from my communion money actually I ended up buying a Xbox and I progressed into just more simple racing games and uh, just trying out see how I am uh, for fun and yeah
1: ok and then at the age of 14 you took it online is that right
8: uh yes, I decided to compete professionally in um a twenty four hour race where I raced with teammates and um yeah, it turned out we actually finished second place in the race okay so from there on that's that's where my career went How does that work physically? Are
1: you at home in a in a gaming chair uh racing cars on computers
8: yeah basically uh okay. just just imagine you're in an arcade playing a game, but're against other people around the world with uh teammates. And you were the youngest playing this. Uh, I believe in that race, yes, I was okay.
1: actually the youngest. So when you won that, you what, what What do you do with that, with that victory, or sorry to come second, but that sense of achievement? What's the ambition?
8: Uh, the ambition for me was to try and make it a career. Um, so get offers from, say, bigger teams, uh, bigger organisations that will come and offer you say, maybe a two-year contract that will, that will set you up to, uh, to compete in the biggest competitions.
1: Okay, so who signed you up then?
8: Uh, I actually joined the Williams Racing uh, Academy mm-hmm. uh, for eSports. So from there, I gained two very experienced teammates to work with, and uh, they helped me come along.
1: And do you represent Munster Rugby Gaming?
8: Uh, yes, I represented Munster Rugby Gaming last year in a big competition.
1: And is it lucrative, Dara? Uh,
8: yes, <laughs> it is. Um, only if you're at the very top level, though. It's it's quite difficult to reach the top level.
1: Uh, when, and when I say lucrative, how can I ask how much money we're talking, or is that a rude question?
8: Uh, no, no, it's fine. Um, I'd say... It, obviously, it, it depends on who you are and what your team is. Okay. But I'd say on average, maybe about 2,500 a month nice. uh, if you're at the very, very top.
1: So what did you do when you were playing away and your folks were saying, where's he gone? He's up in his room again. What's he doing? The usual. <laughs> uh, how did that argument work out? Because it's hard being a teenager anyway. It's probably hard being a teenager who loves playing on his Xbox or whatever it is you're playing on for hours and 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 hours. So how did you navigate the potential problems there between parents and teenage boy and the potential for all sorts of you know skullduggery <laughs>
8: um it was it was a difficult one for a few years but um my cousin helped me out mostly by um by telling my parents that I was actually you know very good and they should try and give me a chance to pursue this because um, I just played a few games with him. He was like, he's he's actually very good. So I uh, had to convince my parents uh, by myself as well that it, it could work out. So I had to show them, you know, what I was doing in big competitions and how much money that could be earned from this. So okay. I needed to also balance it with school too.
1: Very good. And uh, was that, a, was that a, an argument you had to have or were you very much... Uh, your own captain of your own ship saying no I'm gonna I know what I need to do here I know who I need to convince and I know what I need to do to get it right
8: yeah no I I definitely knew what I needed to do but of course my my parents were very traditional about it as in like um you know we haven't seen anybody do this before so how could you do it so it took it took a lot of convincing definitely but over I over the last few years especially they've they've come around to it and I lived up to my promise and passed my leaving
1: cert. Congratulations, so. good man yourself. That's the problem. I think the problem is it's almost a, a generational gulf for some people like myself who don't understand this world and you, who are so deeply into it. And as I've learned recently about gaming and this world generally, it is more lucrative as an industry than music and movies put together, which I thought was extraordinary. So you know, it, it, I'm kind of out of step here, and you're ahead of the curve. But you you managed to convince your parents that this is something that you can do for a living so you've done your leaving cert and what what happens next
8: um i just i'm i'm finished school now obviously um i'm not in i'm not in college yeah. i've decided to take this up full time of course uh which is of course a risk but i know that i can pull it off and i'm fully confident in myself so for for the next couple i'd say 5 years at least i'm I'm looking at competing in the highest level competitions for the, the biggest prize money.
0: That's the uber-confident Irish gamer Dara McCormack talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning. Now, we're currently living through the increasingly inaccurately titled Shachtan na Guelge," And on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, writer and broadcaster Monchon McGann joined Claire in studio to talk about Irish words for animals in nature. Because so
2: many of the English words are based on Latin and based on Greek, they can be kind of alien to us. Mm-hmm. But a word like, a word like um, the word for bat, you know, ski hon, lather. Like, it's so gorgeous. Ski hon, wings, lahar, leather, leather wings.
5: That's exactly what it is. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> um, or what is it? Or like uh, the spider, like spider. I forever, I knew the Irish for spider was daw allah. And I never thought, like daw is daw little ox. Allah is either Fallah or Isle, so either of the wall or the cliff, the little ox of the cliff or the wall. Mm -hmm. Why it's that, I've no idea.
5: Well, it speaks to the strength of a spider because they're hardy little things, aren't they? I see, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And when it comes to bats as well, we had Skihán Láthár, as you say. But there are other words too, aren't there, for right. bat? Yeah,
2: exactly. tog is another. And so eel means a flock. So it's just because one of the people would have seen these sudden flocks of them going on. Or the other one, um, the sort of, is a boss Baasíha, which is... Um, uh, it's sort of you know no wonder people are afraid of bats when you have a word like that, bossiha, which is like you know death of night. Like mm-hmm. so, it's it's not is not the sort of thing that's going to or boss dorochi actually, um, yeah, sort of black or darkness, um, death.
5: Okay, many people I know, not all people, but many people were afraid and are afraid of bats. So that's mm-hmm. probably speaking to that. Some people love them. I know and have them happily living in their attics and uh, would never have it any other way. The word for squid. Particularly descriptive. Uh, tell us about
2: it. So mahar suig, mahar huig, and so mahar obviously a mother, and then suig or huig is to suck or to 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 hold around, to squeeze into you, and mainly it's sort of focusing on the squid's motherhood. And the, um, a squid mother, you know, will have seventy thousand eggs, and then some certain forms of squid and octopus will actually. They'll only have them when they're about to die, and they'll lay all these eggs and then they will sit on these eggs until the eggs hatch and all the little squid squidlings maybe come out <laughs> and the 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 squid mother. Um, will def- we'll fend off all the att- attackers pre- you know keeping her ke- looking
5: after her children until she's
2: eaten alive So she's a sucking mother Exactly She's ah, looking fabulous. after them all mm-hmm.
5: Squirrels I love squirrels because yeah. they annoy uh, one of my dogs at home and they sort of <laughs> laugh in his face but there are lots of words aren't there for squirrels <laughs> Yeah exactly So um, I mean we normally we'd say irarua, no
2: ir-a-gloss. Yes. Irarua, a red squirrel iragloss a grey squirrel Which is green in my Irish I know that's what, So that's an example of how an, of a different language gives you a different way of seeing the world because as you say glass is green and then do you remember glass is green and then Onya is for artificial green which is always a lovely difference um, but then glass actually meant the colour of the sea and you know to a People of us who've been speaking this language for two and a half thousand years on this island, who've been living on the island for longer, looking, that sea wasn't just green, it was blue, it was grey, it was all these different shades. So then glass can refer to those different shades of the sea. So as you say, era glass can be, it's, it can be used for grey, for grey in the form of animals, that can be a bit of a shimmer. So a grey, a horse, a gray, you know, can be, you, you say, you say, mm-hmm. like a couple glass.
5: It's not a definitive grey, you know, it, it can change depending on the light, the seasons, and whether they're standing with the shade of a tree or something.
2: Exactly, which is what any artist will tell you. You know, you, for, even in school, in art school, they say, look at that painting, white thing is not white. So it's almost yeah. that lesson. People, it was just perception. People were looking around them. And then the other word is, um, is well, even ira-rua is weird, you know, because darig is, is one of the words for red. Yes. But this is very specific. Darig is either a very strong or a very bright red. So f- a fire can be darig, or the different uh, layers of the soil. It can be a dark red or blood is always darig. But then rua is often the hair, so it's more sort of russet red, the Mm -hmm. hair of an animal and uh, so obviously you know, longer they looked at him. No, that's more r- rua than than Dari.
5: Okay, and uh, Motherin rua is a fox, isn't it? My father used to sing a song or say, tell us a poem about a
2: Rua. That's the one. Yeah, mother. Yeah, and there's a few words. Like Shonach is another word for a fox. But you know, when you look at that, it isn't that bright blood red, the colour of a of a fox. It is more brownie. There's another word for the squirrel, uncut cut on Madhere crown which is, you know, basically the dog of the tree just because it would have looked like a small dog as opposed to cot crown, which is a pine marten. Mm-hmm. And again, a cat, pine marten does have those claws and is always scrambling up trees. So
5: when you have different words for the same thing, is that a geographical thing? Is it depend where you are?
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean the best way of understanding Ireland is through its geography it was all these peninsulas and most people didn't move from one peninsula to another like I'm at the moment making a TV series about holy wells and I was out in Ackle and there's three holy wells there's many other main wells but three holy wells I'd be talking to people in Ackle they would have been to their local holy well they wouldn't have been the other one like Ackle is pretty small so Ireland was always local so the words you used the phrases you used were were always
5: local Okay so let's come back to our our animals now we've spoken about the squirrels and how they can be different shades of grey Mm -hmm. (laughs) or almost green wolves long gone from the Irish wilderness some want them back yeah. Um, they were quite common though at one time, and they had a couple of different names. as didn't they? Exactly,
2: like right up until the eighteenth century, which is not that long ago. And in fact, you know, they were survived in Ireland a lot longer than in Britain. They had in Scotland, they had, they had eradicated them all. Um, so yeah, the main one I suppose is Máthair, and Máthair is interesting. You know, the son, son, tir of the land, son of the land, and that ties into this concept that a lot of different cultures. You know, wolves were taught to be otherworldly, and were taught to maybe change into humans. So you know, you see that little Red Riding Hood and the wolf, or we see it with that great, the cartoon saloon Wolf Walkers movie. Yes, there was this idea that they were slightly beyond. Another one is Faelhu, and Fael means wild, and Coo is obviously a dog, Cullen, khu or a hound more. Faelhu, wild, um, wild hound, and there was a lot of saints called Faelan, and Faelan is uh, basically means you know, Frelon can be a seagull, which is wild thing. Fuel can be wild or shrieking. So Frelon is either wild thing or shrieking thing of the, of the, of the sky. So are or all, being.
5: can I stop you there now? Are all felons wild things? Well,
2: that's the wild thing, yes. <laughs> what they are, no, but they're more than that. A Frelon or a felon is either a, a wolf lover, a wolf killer, or someone with the essence, the spirit of the wolf. Do you know the way when we go to America are the native Americans and we look, they say, you know, I am buffalo soldier or whatever I am. The same in Ireland. All the early saints, because they were, a lot of them were pagan druids mm-hmm. and then just took on Christianity. Oscar, you know, means lover of deer. Os is a word for deer. usheen little deer. Cúan, little hound. Um, Ronan, little seal. They're all just, oh, this is my spirit animal, or you could say these were the killer, they, they were the, you know, the best person at killing these animals. But that's unlikely. It's more likely this is the animal they identified with.
5: So all the feelings are connected in some way with how they felt about wolves.
2: Yeah, and maybe that they were just boasting, you know, because there's these clans in Ossery, you know, the, the Bishop of Ossery yes. that reign. Ossery means, os, again, deer. It's the people who worship the deer. So, this is all real pagan stuff. I love the fact that there's a bishop. Of, I'm a bishop of the cult of the deer worshippers. That's oh, fabulous. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah.
5: fabulous. My mother's a feeling, so I'll be on to her now. Ah, I hope she's see. listening. And sure,
0: if Claire's mum missed it live, there are ways she could catch up on it. Bin Montgomery McGann, a councillor, Claire, Fwing agus an Nodor, Ermodzen. Fostering Fortnite started yesterday and on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show, Ray spoke to two foster parents, Niamh and Leanne, and started with Niamh, who's been fostering for 13 years.
9: Initially, I started fostering on my own as a single person. And then I met my husband in two thousand and ten and he had to be um he had to be interviewed to be a foster carer at that stage and uh, I suppose it was one of the main things for me. I loved doing it. I'd initially got involved with fostering through doing the Chernobyl children. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of the next progression, I suppose, that I loved what I'd done with those kids. So I was working full time. So I, I started off by doing respite fostering, which would be just taking in kids, say, on a Friday evening and then dropping them to school Monday morning on my way to work.
10: Right. Uh, now, a number of things you've covered there. Um, firstly, you, you've sort of dispelled one of the myths. You were single and you were able to foster, Yeah. yeah right? So yeah. that that's allowed.
9: It is allowed, it is, okay. absolutely. Um, once uh, you have, I suppose, somewhere for them to sleep, they have to have their own bedrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of his criteria and that you can give them, you know, lots of love and attention and take care of them.
10: Okay. Uh, and then your husband, and that was a deal breaker. You said, I'm, I'm going to go Yeah, conti- it was. Go on. <laughs> yeah.
9: We met, and we, uh, we had a bit of a whirlwind romance, right and um, he asked me to marry him after six weeks. Right. And uh, so, um, look, six months later anyway, we put the ring on the finger and he came, He, I did say to him, look, if you're not going to do this, it will be a deal breaker for me because we were both kind of late in our 40s yeah. at that stage. Well, I was just 40 and um, I suppose, look, I knew children weren't going to be something in our lives and I loved just doing the fostering and I haven't looked back with it so we, we've been blessed to meet some really amazing kids and he met the two children that I was fostering at the time and yeah he, he jumped on board and was delighted yeah. to take part
10: When you have a, a chat with somebody that you haven't met before uh, yeah. and the, the topic of fostering comes up how do you describe it to them? What do you say to them?
9: Um, it depends on the person, Ray, to be honest with you. I mean, I have friends who have looked into doing fostering and they're thinking about it. Um, I suppose for me the criteria would be if you have smaller children in your house, you have to get them to a certain age um, because children coming into your home from foster, to foster will have different issues coming in to to you, mm. and I suppose you want to give them the best of your time and care that you can. So I suppose you need to be in a, in the right head head uh, head frame, and you have to have the space in your life to do it. Okay. And that's what I would say to some of my friends.
10: Yeah, it's it's, it's a selfless thing to do, uh, Liana. Yeah. I'll bring you in there. So you're not doing it too long.
11: No, I'm I'm considered a newbie, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I would be two years fostering now and three years since I started the process.
10: Right. We'll get to the process in a moment. Uh, but why did you start it or want to do it?
11: Again, very similar to Neve. There, it was. I was kind of growing up and just realised, you know that not everyone has, you know, the traditional mum, dad and different types of families. And as I met my now husband, I had said to him, you know, I would look into maybe adoption or fostering as we went through in our married life. And we decided then to try for our own family, which we're blessed with. But after three children, we... I was finished carrying children if you will and just decided then I was like we definitely are not complete in our family so we sat down we talked about it obviously did first thing Google searches into Tusla and fostering Ireland and everything and from that we were like okay I I think we could do something like this again it's such a wide spectrum like we didn't know if it was at the time long term short term respite emergency so once we made the call and got a few answers and and talked to Tusla we got into more depth of what might be suited best for our family and our situation
10: yeah so you've three of your own yes and, and a lot of people would say, well, that, that that's enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> Without bringing think, other children into your life.
11: <laughs> I think I was always referred to as Pippa Ross from Home and Away growing up. I Her? always, if you remember Home and Away. Yes. Um, oh, Pippa, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so
10: you, you from an early age, you, oh, yeah. you, were, you were talking about having loads of children, weren't you? I
11: always said to my mum and dad, I'd love five. Right. And, and okay. obviously then I carried three and I was like... I I don't think I can carry any more. It was kind of recommended by the doctor at the time, look, you're blessed with three, you know, let's leave it at that. And I thought, okay. and then when my youngest hit one, I was like, no, no, we're not, we're not done. Yeah. So that's how we started the process. We would have rung up when she was one, um, not realising at the time there had to be an age gap between your youngest child and any child you bring or your oldest that's child. That's one of the
10: stipulations. Yeah,
11: Yeah, and again, it, it, you have to be very considerate of who you're bringing into your home as well for yourself and the attention that child or children may need and while raising three young children of my own.
0: That's foster parent Leanne who, with foster parent Neve was talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon. Marking Fostering Fortnight. Irish actress Sharon Sexton is currently featuring in the Bad Out of a Hell musical in the West End, and she spoke to Ryan Tuberty this morning.
12: So I'm from Nice and County Kildare originally, so Mm -hmm. I'm a Lily White. Yeah. Um, And uh, I studied. drama in Dublin and DIT's Conservatory Music and Drama because there was no musical theatre course back in the day when I did over here um, which just wasn't an option for me so I did my degree in drama and I was allowed to do that because I could also be qualified as a teacher out of it so that was the safety net if you know what I mean sure. and then I kind of picked up bits and pieces of work um, and singing in musical theatre was always what I wanted to do. So any musical stuff that happened in Ireland that came my way, I was lucky enough to audition and I got to um, some roles, some super musical theatre roles in Ireland in Ikeano and in Anglo the Musical and also in like the Gaiety Panto and stuff. But there was nothing that would kind of sustain a career throughout the year. Okay. So it was that kind of decision of whether I was ever going to really go for it or not. And by the time um, I took the leap, I was nearly 30, so I was lucky enough that they were looking for an Irish cast in the West End for the original cast of The Commitments. So I flew over and back six times for rounds and rounds of auditions and um, yeah, I was in. And And that was in 2013, so I've moved over here since then, I've kind of, I've never looked back thankfully.
1: So you're bouncing from stage show to stage show uh, after The Commitments, where did you go?
12: Yeah, I did a little tour of a musical called Cabana and then I was lucky to get back into the West End with Billy Elias, Yeah. which was just such a super show. But um, yeah, like there's so much work over here and it's fantastic because I love musical theatre and there's a lot of it, but also there's so many people that want to do it. So it's the same as anybody in any of these kind of businesses. You're you're bouncing, but it's the time in between when you're, you're not in a show that you're kind of always on the hunt for the next gig. So Bad Out of Hell came along in 2016 and that's been that was just like a career changer for me.
1: Okay, the Bad Out of Hell, this is where it all happened yesterday when we were chatting uh, about this. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's funny, um, I was watching I was watching Meat Loaf on, on TV recently and I didn't realise that uh, the Bad Out of Hell as an album was conceived as a musical originally, is that right?
12: Yeah, that's right. So it was over 40 years ago now and Jim Simon had written this epic Epic musical. He was a big opera fan. And so that's obviously all the Meatloaf songs are famous also for being so long. Yeah. You know, you remember "Anything I so Love that was number one and it was like seven and a half minutes. But all of his songs were huge epic rock songs. And he wrote that out of hell as a stage show, but nobody would make it. Um, and he ended up discovering Meatloaf and he gave him the name Meatloaf and um, basically created this kind of rock Pavarotti with Meatloaf and they said, look, if no one's going to make the show, let's just get these tracks made and put it out as an album. And that became that out of hell, the album that everybody knows that was like a huge hit worldwide, which I think even took them by surprise. Um, so yeah, it took 40 years since the release of the album for somebody to finally take the punt and put the show on the stage.
1: It makes It makes so much sense in all the years. I never realized that, but it makes so much sense that that's the uh, the genesis of the story. And um, Meatloaf was was he um, like a musical star before you kind of get into the rock world? Is that is that what happened there?
12: He was, yeah. He was in Rocky Horror, the the um, stage version of the show, and then of course he did a cameo in the movie as well. And I think he did other musicals like Hair, the musical, and stuff. He was dabbling in musicals and right. stage stuff off Broadway, um, and then obviously that at a had just sent him on a completely different stratosphere, you know.
1: And you're just back from uh, New Zealand and Australia, and they they love a bit of meatloaf over there.
12: Yeah, it was actually incredible. It was just amazing to play. And we changed up the show as well when we went over there, because the show has run in the West End, in the Coliseum, and we also have played in Toronto. We were in the Board Gash of course, last year as mm. well on tour. And it's always been done in a theatre setting, like the musical. But in Australia, they, we had such a short amount of time to do it. They wanted to do it in these massive arenas. So we ended up kind of creating a kind of hybrid version of like the musical, but also like a rock concert. And so it was just incredible. We were doing our jobs, but all of a sudden to like 8,000 people in these huge arenas nice. and they were going crazy for us.
0: Sharon Sexton, Irish musical theatre sensation, talking to Ryan Toberley this morning about her stint in Bad Out of Hell, the musical. Finally on this edition of Playback Daily, tickets for this year's Eurovision Song Contest in Liverpool went on sale today and demand is expected to be huge. Claire Byrne was joined on the line this morning by TV critic and broadcaster Scott Bryan, who had all his browser tabs open in anticipation.
13: The interesting thing is that, of course, there's the grand final, which is due to have uh, an audience of about 160, 180 uh, million viewers. Of course, one of the, of the biggest uh, TV spectacles there can be. But there's also going to be many events throughout the week on the two semifinals, on the Tuesdays and Thursdays. There's rehearsals throughout the week. So there's actually nine events that you can go and get tickets for. So I'm um, mm-hmm. trying so far to see whether I can get tickets for the big ones as well as the other ones as well.
5: So the people who don't manage to get tickets for the final, if they get tickets to the other events, are they promised a a bit of a spectacle at those ones too, Scott?
13: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's because the BBC needs the opportunity to rehearse um, it's also good for the performers as well because they have to get used to performing in front of a, loud, a large stadium audience for the Saturday. Um, but there's also for jury shows. I mean, these are when uh, delegations from every participating country goes and shares their votes uh, and makes a decision. So so that that's actually separate from the main um, final TV event that we see on the, the, the Saturday night. So there's actually uh, nine events in all. And I think it's also the fact that the m and Stadium in Liverpool, which will be hosting the event, it's got the capacity of about 10,000 people. Which, which sounds quite a lot, but it's not the biggest of stadiums. So mm-hmm. the fact that um, it's able to be spread across the whole week, I think would mean that there's there's a bit more opportunity for fans to actually go and see their fav- favourite um, countries participating.
5: And if anyone listening to us here is interested in, in heading over to Liverpool, they've got to go through Ticketmaster UK to buy the tickets. Is that right?
13: Yes, so ticketmaster.co.uk, they recommend uh, if you've got four minutes to go to have a profile set up in advance that you can use easily, effortlessly um, uh, go in and purchase one. I mean, like, I think it's the demand's going to be big. There's, there's no way around it. Normally, um, uh, it sells out within minutes any other year. I think the fact that it's in the UK, the fact that there's been all of this extra media attention, the fact that the UK hasn't hosted it in 25 years, I mean, I think the demand is going to be considerable but I think it's also worth reminding that at the end of the day it, the atmosphere in the room would be amazing but it's a TV spectacle it is made for the TV uh, with all of the camera angles in there so you don't really miss anything so, so if you're not able to go and get a, a ticket I wouldn't say it's the end of the world
5: Absolutely and people have Eurovision parties and have a great time uh, sitting on their own sofas at home. Questions being asked too Scott about the prices of the tickets I mean some of them mm-hmm. start for the preview shows at £30 sterling but they yeah. go all the way up, don't they? To what they
13: go all the way up to semi-finals, starting at ninety pounds sterling, um, going up to one hundred and sixty pounds sterling, um, even up to three hundred pounds. I mean, this is a thing. You can think of that. Oh, it's a bit—it's steep, um, and it is. Don't get me wrong, especially during the cost of living crisis. But I don't think this is a way to make them uh, to make the organisers make a lot of money. I mean, this is the, the thing. The BBC is having to pay at least 8 million, possibly up to 17 million out of their own money um, just to put the production on. Uh, the government's put forward, uh, the UK government's put forward ten million. Uh, the local uh, Liverpool City Council has put forward um, some money too. And I think there will be still... A shortfall, of course, Liverpool will be having a massive boon to tourism, uh, accommodation, of course, is astronomical in terms of price anyway, as is, and all the people coming to that area. But I don't think this is really made for profit. I think it's just the sheer scale and size of putting on an event in the first place. This is just going to try to recoup some of the money back.
5: So the BBC is putting this on TV and radio coverage, but then they also, two weeks later, have the King's coronation to look forward to. Yeah, so a very well, busy time for the broadcaster. So,
13: it's actually closer. I mean, it's, it's the week after. So, so it's going to be the culmination on the Saturday. Um, then there's going to be um, the uh, special event on the Sunday, a bit similar to the Platinum Jubilee celebrations um, for the Queen that was um, last summer. Um, and then two days later, it's going to be the first semi final uh, taking place in Liverpool, um, two semi finals, and then there's going to be the final. And uh, I mean, the scale of this, this is the biggest event that the BBC, two biggest events the BBC would ever have to air. And eight months ago, they didn't know that they would be holding either. Mm-hmm. Of course, a considerable opportunity, but also a considerable kind of cost to it too.
5: And who's representing the UK for the Eurovision? You don't know we, yet, do you?
13: Don't know. Oh. So we would have to find out by next week. I think there's, there's a, um, a firm date, normally in the middle of March, when the EBU, the European Broadcasting Union, wants everyone to finalise and confirm their entry. Um, in the UK, of course, we have had it before, in which it's been decided by the public. But it's actually going to be done by a record company um, and the BBC them, themselves. So I would expect no confirmation, maybe Wednesday, maybe Thursday. TV
0: critic and broadcaster Scott Bryan talking to Claire Byrne about tickets for this year's Eurovision in Liverpool which went on sale this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shuradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Until the next time, from me, thank you for listening and good luck.